everybody, and welcome back to Chartbeats, a journey through stock, Aiken and Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au, and I'm here with my friend Matthew Denby. Hi, everyone. And we're back to normal proceedings this episode after dedicating all of episode three to You Spin Me Round Like a Record, and deservedly so. And now we're going to look at the next four singles produced by Mike Stock, Matt Aiken, and Pete Waterman. And a reminder that you can listen to all the songs in full and watch all the videos at stockaikenwaterman.co.uk. That should keep them happy. I hope so. Give them a plug for their website. And this is another jam-packed episode, including more of our interviews with Hazel Dean and Phil Harding. But we also have someone new. We've spoken to someone new. It's not just Hazel and Phil every every episode. We found Michael Prince. We found Michael Prince, yes. One of the great mysterious figures of the Saw history. He is a massive mystery because you don't read anything about him. No one seems to have known what's become of him, but we tracked him down and we will tell you how we did it later when we talk about Dance Your Love Away, the fourth song we're going to talk about in this episode. And he's not the only person we kind of unearthed, is he? That's right. We've got a special non-verbal appearance by Alan Richards from Spelt Like This. And if you're going to wonder how we're going to pull that off, just wait and see. (laughs) That's right. Non-verbal appearance. But before we get to any of them, we are going to start off with the first single that Stockhack and Waterman produced that was released in 1985. That's right. We're up to a new year. Dead or Alive, we're riding high on the charts with You Spin Me Around Like a Record. What did Saw release next? Well, they went back to their first ever top 10 star. They went back to Hazel Dean, who released her fourth single from the Heart First album. It was another Saw number called No Fool for Love. This wasn't a high energy stormer, but it was a sophisticated little mid-tempo electro pop song. I really enjoy it. Let's hear a little bit of it. was No Fool for Love by Hazel Dean, which was remixed from the album version, given a bit of a freshen up. And as Matt said, it was a different style of a song because Back in My Arms once again had stalled at number 41. So obviously I thought, okay, the high energy thing might not be working anymore. Let's try something different. And No Fool for Love stalled at number 41. And I think that's really cruel. Now I know a lot of pop fans like to play what ifs with uh, singles choices. If they'd chosen this single over that single, it would have done differently. It would have done better. We all like to play those games. But I really think in this instance, if it had come off the massive momentum of whatever I do, wherever I go, I think it would have done a lot better. I think it would have got radio play. It's got a really good sort of radio vibe to it. It doesn't have that bit of a, dare I say it, shrill edge that back in my arms had that single wasn't one of my favorites i prefer this one much more i think it's really sad it didn't go top 40 because if it had if it had been a big hit hazel might have been able to bust out of the high energy box she might have been considered as more sort of a more diverse artist than she was probably accepted later on where she is branded as the queen of high energy and there's nothing wrong with that i love high energy music but i'm sure she likes to sing a few mid-tempo songs as well doesn't she gavin well she does and it's funny you should say that you prefer this song because Hazel also prefers No Fool for Love to Back in My Arms once again. Let's hear Hazel telling us just that. I think No No Fool for Love should have been the third single not Back in My Arms. I just think it's a better song and it's a slightly slower slightly different kind of song but 
you know, back in my arms was the third single. For me, see, I can look at back and reflect on these things as I've grown older. But at the time, I was on such a high, you know, I mean, I was all over the place, all over the world. So in many ways, those sort of decisions, in a way, it was taken out of my hands. So this is what they decided. I'd be, I could be anywhere in the world when those decisions were made. And I had to sort of trust, put my trust in them, you know. I wasn't devastated because I was so busy being a star, if you like. I was so busy having a great time and travelling the world. I mean, it was fantastic. So that was Hazel Dean telling us that Proto got it wrong and who knows, she may be right. This single certainly did seem to kill her relationship with Proto. It was her last single with them and after this she went to EMI. I think this song to me foreshadows some stuff that Saw did later in their career. I sense a wee bit of princess in some of this production and in some of the songwriting. Do you see that, Gavin? Yeah, it's definitely moving away from high energy into more of a groove-based sound and uh, I I mean, I really like No Fool for Love. I do prefer Back in My Arms once again because I'm a big pop lover. But I really like No Fool for Love as well. And I like the way it was remixed from the album. It's a real single version. Interestingly, Hazel would have liked another song from Heart First to be released as a single. I wanted another track to be a single. And so did my record plugger at the time, Ollie Smallman. It was the title song of the album, Heart First. It was the actual song, Heart First. To me, that was such a waste. It's a great song and it should have been a hit. So I would have always liked that one to have been a single, but they didn't put it out. So, you know, I was a bit sort of disappointed, really. I have to say, Heart First is a great album, and it is quite diverse, what you were saying before, Matt, about Hazel being pigeonholed a little bit as a high-energy artist. If you listen to Heart First, only, like, a third of the album is high-energy. There are ballads on there, and it, yeah, probably would have been an idea to release some different types of singles, but, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, one of the sad things about the fact that these uh, last two singles didn't hit the top 40 is it didn't give the album the boost that it probably deserved the album didn't do much in the charts although it is very beloved by fans isn't it Gavin it is it's, and it's a really solid album every song on the album is good there's I like you're too good to be true I like devil in you pretty much every song on the album could have been a single but uh, yeah Hazel left Proto and went to EMI and we will see in a few episodes time what happened then that's right But now we're going to go to an act who actually came to Saw from EMI. Oh, nice segue. We didn't even plan that. Wow. Yes, we are talking about Contract of the Heart by Spelt Like This. Let's have a listen to that. That was Contract of the Heart by Spelt Like This. And as Matt said, they were with a big record company with a big budget attached who were ready to spend all that money with Stockake and Waterman making an album. And they were accompanied by a big music industry figure, weren't they, Matt? That's right. Their manager was Tom Watkins, the notorious record industry figure who, of course, would go on to massive success with Pet Shop Boys, then Bross, then East 17. But before those acts, his first big attempt at success with Stock Aiken and Waterman was spelt like this. 
By all accounts, it did not go very well. The single got to number 91 in the UK. The real problems with Spelt Like This were what happened in the studio, what happened between Tom Watkins and Stockake and Waterman, what happened between the band getting caught up in the middle of all this kind of infighting. Basically, it didn't go very well. Pete Waterman has not beaten around the bush when recalling this project, which he considers to be one of the great fiascos of Stockake and Waterman's careers. Now, they took on this project because it was a major label with a major budget which had come to them in the wake of Dead or Alive. Suddenly they were hot producers. There was enormous pressure on them to make this work and launch them into the big league of producers for hire. You know, artists with their own songs would come to them and pay vast sums of money for them to produce and make them into hits. Well, it didn't happen with Spelt Like This. There were no hits. Now Spelt Like This were a three-piece group fronted by Alan Richards, the singer who now goes by the name Alan Carner. Russell McKenzie was on bass and Alan Rawlings was on guitar. But it's one of those stories where the members of Spelt Like This kind of get forgotten because the big players in this story are Tom Watkins and are Stockake and Waterman and there were arguments about the songs, there were arguments about the productions, there were basically arguments about everything. We spoke to Phil Harding about Spelt Like This. He's written about this as well in his book. Take it away, Phil. There we saw an example of what should and could have become a fruitful relationship between Tom Watkins and Stockhagen Waterman. Tom Watkins is very much like Pete, you know, another entrepreneur, really, that's been fantastic in the pop scene. He always had his next project, his next act, his next band. Although Pete did sign Rick Astley and Sonia, he was never really a manager as, as Tom Watkins was. And, you know, managers have that knack of selling the project and the idea to record companies, and, and Tom was great at that. So he had a major budget behind Spelt Like This, all the kind of marketing and promotion, you know, he would present it before the record was even made. But <laughs> at the end of the day, Tom had more misses than hits, unfortunately, if, if you were to track his career. And Spelt Like This was one of those where, I don't know, the three guys were enthusiastic, they would give everything they could in the studio but they were insistent on their songs or co-writing the songs but quite simply I would say at the end of the day you know and this is the magic thing with so many bands and artists the lead singer did not have a characterful voice that people could lock into and no matter what you put around it the songs the package the marketing the promotion the production it's very hard to sell to the media and the public a singer and a vocal sound that's the only way I could describe it uh, really that just simply doesn't click and quite often in the studio process you can tell that you know we could tell whilst recording and I was doing the initial engineering on that you know it was quite a struggle to get a good vocal out of him and Mike Stock would be the one that's sitting next to myself you know the engineer that's running the technology but you're locked into what's happening as, as an engineer as well and you can tell and you can feel whether the producer's happy or not and, and how it's going and you know I could just tell it was a project that wasn't going anywhere but Tom Watkins had this fantastic you know he'd turn up to the studio and say yeah this is great it's fantastic yeah we'll do this in the video and we'll do that and we've got this marketing budget but you can't no matter how much money you're marketing you can't market a stinker certainly not you can and you can manipulate it to a certain amount of chart success but at the end of the day something about the sound and the song and for most members of the public that's how the singer connects with you and the lyrics if they don't connect they don't connect So that was Phil Harding not really beating around the bush about why he thought Spelt Like This didn't work. I don't know, what do you think of the song? It's an okay song. I have two divergent reactions to this song. My first reaction when I listened to it again after many, many years of not having heard it was... 
you know, this is a bit of a flat song. This is a bit of nothing. But then I kept having the chorus popping into my head and I was uh, sick a few weeks ago. I had a cold, so I was waking up a lot in the night. And every time I woke up in the night, this song was going through my head. And then I had to realise this is quite a sophisticated little pop song. Unfortunately, sophisticated little pop songs quite often don't work because they have to work the first few times that you hear them. And if there's not a lot of radio play to get the song going, or if there isn't a gimmick like a fantastic video to get you to listen to the song and appreciate the song, there's not really much hope for that song. I've got to say the video is a mess. It's really uninspiring. And that was probably half the battle. It's bizarre. It's, yeah, this odd little video that has all these scenes of superpowers, America and Russia. Russia and China, you know, political figures like JFK pops up in in historical footage to a song that's kind of like a love song. And we're not the only ones who think that the video is a bit odd. Here's where we get to our non-verbal appearance by Alan Carner, who at the time of Spelt Like This was their singer, Alan Richards. He didn't want to have a chat on the podcast, but he was very happy to answer questions via email. And he had this to say about the song. Yes, I was quite impressed with the Stock Wardman version, but was very surprised surprised about the video to be honest. The song I wrote was a folky love song originally that Russell and I demoed as a dance version and the finished product was very different from what I wrote in 1983. I'd never envisaged it being about global politics either. More just a song about two people who love one another. Yeah, you get a sense from that of an artist who's sort of a small player in a massive game of massive egos. The massive egos being Tom Watkins and Pete Waterman. And, you know, if you read Pete Waterman's book, you have no doubt whatsoever about what he thinks about the spelt like this situation. In fact, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes and it's really quite scathing. He said, The project was the biggest travesty I've ever been involved in in my life. The talent was Tom Watkins more than anyone else in the band. And I never understood what EMI saw in them in the first place. I think that Tom felt that it was our fault, meaning the failure, but it wasn't. We were doing everything we could to make something out of nothing, but it just wasn't happening. That hurts, doesn't it, Gavin? It does hurt, and especially coming from a man who was involved in Kako, to call call spelt like this the biggest travesty. I mean, contract of the heart is no, we should be dancing. No, absolutely not. And I'm going to say this, if anyone from spelt like this is listening, I like this record. It's a good record. I appreciate it, at least. Well, let's hear some more from Alan in his emailed answers. He says, it was so terribly unfortunate that it came to nothing in the end, and the reasons for this are still unclear to this day. My personal feeling is that it wasn't just down to Contract of the Heart being a flop. I think there were many other factors behind its failure and the reasons for this were mainly to do with the politics and characters involved, namely the infighting between the record producers, management and the record label. It must have been tough being that trio in the middle of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It really does uh, show you how our pop dreams can go awry, doesn't it? It does, it does. So from a band with a big record company budget behind them who just couldn't get it together. We move now to another band with a big record company behind them who were doing very well for themselves, weren't they, Matt? That's right, and it seems if CBS had any misgivings about Stockcake and the Waterman working with Dead or Alive before you spin me round, they definitely didn't afterwards, because they commissioned a whole album which became Youthquake, and the second single from Youthquake, the follow-up to You Spin Me Round, was Lover Come Back to Me.
how's that for a thunderous return? Love a Comeback to Me peaked at 11 in the UK. In Australia, it got to 13. In Ireland, number 6. In Japan, 9. South Africa, 3. And Switzerland, 5. So they were still on fire. Not in the league of the number ones, but they were still hot property across the world. And it's a good song. It's a good follow-up to a great song. And I think that's the distinction. You Spin Me Round Like a Record is a great song. Love a Comeback to Me is a good song. You know what? It's probably the first Stock Aitken and Waterman song that I became literally obsessed with. Of course, I liked so many of the songs before, but I have really clear memories of, you know, sitting in front of my TV on Saturday morning waiting for the uh, the Top 40 video show to come on. Loved the song. There was something about it that really spoke to me. And uh, the video is a lot of fun too, of course. Pete in his Egyptian tomb. My favourite bit is the kick it right down, right down. That bit. It's very energetic. It would have been good for aerobics back it in the is. day. It is. And by all accounts, this used to just set the, the nightclubs alight. People love dancing to this. I don't think it would have got much radio play, which is probably Dead or Alive's ultimate downfall when it came to, you know, getting more top 10 hits because their songs were too thunderous, too heavy. Of course, people love to dance to them, but do you really want to listen to that on, on AM radio? I don't think so. And now peaking at number 11 in the UK and number 13 in Australia, very frustratingly, so close to the top 10, but they never did get back to the top 10 in either country again. And in fact, Love Come Back to Me is the next biggest hit for Dead or Alive in either country. So it was kind of like they were starting on this downward, downward slide. There would be some spikes. Well, I mean, uh, we'll get to this a lot later, but there is strong reason to believe that something in my house, which is uh, from the third album was cheated out of a top 10 entry in the UK. We'll get to that later. Very, very sad. But Love It Come Back To Me, still a favourite. It still gets people moving. So it was another solid chart hit for Stock Aitken and Waterman. In fact, obviously it did better than Smelt Like This or Hazel Dean. Probably would have been a bit reassuring that, oh yeah, great, we can have another hit. Now this single was a little bit of a departure from You Spin Me Round, and I think that probably irked Pete Waterman a bit, judging by what he wrote in his book. I think Pete Waterman really would have liked the band to have followed up You Spin Me Round with a sound alike record. There's only really one other track on the whole album that sounded a wee bit like You Spin Me Round, which was My Heart Goes Bang, and that came out a lot later. I don't know. I mean, I think this comes back to the damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, if you put out the same thing over and over again, like Hazel Dean, Back in My Arms once again didn't work. You can second guess all you like. I kind of think you need to go with what feels like the best song at the time. And Love Come Back to Me was the best song at the time. And it did. It was another hit. And that's probably where ultimately Dead or Alive's fan base was going to take most of their bigger hits into the top 20 because Dead or Alive were a bit of an acquired taste. They didn't have the mass appeal of a band like Culture Club where your grandma loved Culture Club and little school kids like Culture Club. Dead or Alive were always edgy. They were hard. They were sexual. That freaked some people out. And I got a bit of a sense of who Dead or Alive's fan base were for the first time when they were promoting Nuclear Patra in Australia and I went to a signing. I was expecting a bunch of 20-something gay guys. This was in the mid-90s. And I'd say it was 80 to 90% goths and related subcultures. They had a, a fan base that was pretty alternative. They didn't have that mass appeal. And I know, Gavin, you also went to a signing, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I went to one in Sydney. You went to Melbourne, right? I did, yeah. yeah. I went to the Sydney signing at Virgin in Pitt. 
Pitt Street Mall, which was when there was a virgin in Pitt Street Mall. And I went along, yeah, thinking exactly the same thing. And there were all these goths there. And I was there with my few CD slicks, getting them signed by Pete and Steve. And I was probably the only one not dressed head to toe in black. So not another top 10 hit for Dead or Alive, but a decent sized hit nevertheless. Unlike our next single, which wasn't a hit at all. In fact, it didn't chart in the UK, didn't make the top 100. I'm talking about Dance Your Love Away by Michael Prince. Let's have a quick listen now. So that was Dance Your Love Away by Michael Prince, which if you have been listening religiously to this podcast, you will have heard us mention this song back in episode one when we talked about Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go by Hazel Dean. Because Dance Your Love Away was written by Mike Stock and Matt Aitken and recorded by Michael Prince before Hazel Dean was even in the picture with Stock, Aitken, Waterman. Michael had recorded it and then nothing happened with it. And Hazel Dean was played the song, didn't really like it. And so it was transformed into whatever. I do wherever I go and she had a big top five hit with it but then oddly in 1985 Michael Prince's single was released in the UK and I'm not surprised it didn't chart because I guess a lot of people if they did hear it would have been like well what's this song that kind of sounds like that Hazel Dean record but not quite as good so it probably never really stood a chance of becoming a mainstream chart hit given the circumstances around its release but nevertheless it, it was big in the clubs wasn't it that's right this is a really big cult record it was huge in the game clubs at the time and perhaps beyond gay clubs I mean if you if you ever look at any of the Michael Prince videos on YouTube they're just full of comments in Spanish I think in some parts of the Spanish speaking world this was a really substantial hit judging by the amount of reaction but even in retro context in uh, gay clubs you'll still hear this record it is a bit of a favorite of some people but again it doesn't have the massive mainstream appeal that Hazel's record did does it Gavin? No certainly not and as a result Michael Prince didn't become a huge pop star and has kind of faded off the radar altogether and so when we were starting to put this episode together we spent weeks googling Michael Prince where is this guy what's happened to him did he release anything else and I'd pretty much give it up I thought we're never gonna find Michael Prince who knows what's happened to him and then it was like the Da Vinci Code between Matt and myself we followed these clues Matt found a video on YouTube and sent it to me he was like look here he is performing and it was from 2019 yeah I said he's still around he's still alive he's doing a club appearance in Anaheim and so that was the first clue and so I found this YouTube clip so I was like okay where was this club who put this video up there do they know where he is and then I was emailing people and googling stuff and looking up Facebook pages and then finally we found him we found Michael Prince and I finally got to ask what happened how did he end up recording this song with Stokake and Waterman how did it end up going to Hazel Dean and being turned into a completely different song was he annoyed about that All my questions were answered. Let's go hear from Michael now. Let's go back to the very beginning. How did you get your start in the music industry? I actually uh, went to England just as a vacation, and uh, I ended up staying there for six years. London is like Hollywood is in California. It's the music industry in London and the motion picture industry in Hollywood. And everywhere I turned around, it was just people in the business. My first um, roommate uh, in London was uh, Lamal. And uh, who sang Never Ending Story. Mm, yeah. And um, he had a lot of friends who were in the business. And it just, that whole crowd was just 
wherever I went, it was just music, 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 music. And I had uh, answered an advertisement in Melody Maker magazine. A front man, lead singer, didn't know really what I was doing. Anyway, I went to the interview. It turned out to be uh, the sitar player for the group La Mange. He listened to the vocal track that I had put down, and he decided that um, the, the direction that I wanted to go in was not quite the direction that they, he wanted to go in. But he had some friends that were at another studio that would be interested in, in talking with me and, and, and producing some kind of music for dance nightclubs. That's what the direction that I wanted to go in. Turns out it was Peter Waterman, Mike Stuck, and Matt Aiken. And they were unknowns, basically, at, at that time. This the sitar player from Blamange was friends with them. He's the one that put me in contact with, with Stock Aiken. They hadn't joined Peter Waterman yet. At that time, we recorded That's Your Love Away, the first demo. We, I guess they were in negotiation with him. Went on the train uh, to see them out in their studio, which was at Mike Stock's home at the time. I met them and talked to them, and we started the ball rolling. And they wrote me the first song, which was originally Dance Your Love Away. Basically had the um, the lyrics to uh, Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go by Hazel Dean. That was supposed to be my first record. She had um, come into the studio and she had heard that song. She heard my vocal demo and really liked it. Had more money than I did. So they gave it to her and they rewrote me Dance Your Love Away. And uh, we recorded it and I put it out. With Dance Your Love Away, was that something that they presented to you and said, right, here's this song, what do you think? Or was it kind of a more collaborative process? They wrote verbatim exactly what I said I wanted and put it to music. What had you said that you wanted? Just in, in discussions, I wanted uh, really, really fast uh, dance music that would stop hearts on the dance floor. I had no idea about sampling at that time, which is the big thing that came out with a, We used a Fairlight synthesizer and recorded samples, sampling vocals through that. I was very surprised uh, and, and, and pleased when I heard what we could do with that instrument and how to use it. This was very easy to do because basically, like I said, they wrote verbatim exactly what I said. And I think that's absolute genius. It's so, it was so easy. It was simple. Would you say that is how you would describe the whole working relationship with them from writing to recording? Was it easy the whole way through? Oh, yeah. Yes, it was. I felt the pressure on me when we were um, you know, recording actually at, at PWL Studios because I looked around and I'm thinking, this is the first time I ever did anything like this. It was a total accident, probably me even going to England in the first place. So being in the recording studio was a big learning curve, I guess, if it was the first time you'd ever done that. Yeah. And to have such state-of-the-art equipment available for the first time, the realization of what was going on around me just just was there was was it was very real and it was in the here and the now at that time and then it was you know they said to me sit back and let watch it all happen and that's what I did I just sort of like did what I had to do for them and they went and, and remixed it and mixed it mixed it and um, the rest was you know they said it, it'll it'll happen by itself while this was all going on and, and you were kind of meeting people and finding stuff you signed a deal over there yeah and that was with bolts is that right correct. And so how did that deal come about? Was that through the people you had met? Were you introduced to them or did you have to audition or? I was doing everything I could do to push this demo. And uh, they were the first record label that I actually contacted. And they um, signed me that day. I went for a meeting with them, the owner, before I knew it, it was done. I recorded it and took the demo before I was not supposed to have let anybody hear it. They told me to wait and I didn't wait. And I went ahead and I made the arrangement to, to meet with Nikki Price because um, I knew he was looking for artists. And so uh, I, I kind of did what I was asked not to do and got the deal behind their backs. And they were a little pissed off, but, but got over it. So you got the deal. I got the deal and we record, we re-recorded when, when Bolts Records got involved. Obviously, before you could put your song out, Dance Your Love Away became Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. Yeah, the um, chorus stayed, but the lyrics changed. 
How did you find out that that had happened? I was in a nightclub uh, on the dance floor myself, dancing with somebody. And um, she says to me, is this you singing? And I said, no, this is not me. And um, I immediately <laughs> picked up the phone and I said, what is this? I'm in a nightclub and I'm hearing my record, but it's not me singing it. What's going on? And, and they said, just calm down, you know, be cool. If you want to come to the studio tomorrow, we'll explain. So I did. And, and they told me that uh, Hazel was around and um, she had heard the song and uh, they offered it her, to her and they wrote my song uh, as a consolation for, for that, that I recorded it, demoed it first before her. That must have been pretty frustrating. Um, yeah, for a moment, but I mean, I trusted them a great deal. And, and two, I was so new in the business, I didn't know really what I was doing. So I had to had to go on there, what they wanted to do with it. So I let them do it. They had the equipment, they had the, this, the you know, the talent and... Um... All this time, were you kind of thinking, um, I want to get my song out there, I want to get my song out there? Yeah. And just having to wait. I did. I was thinking that, yes. I had met Hazel once or twice before. Wasn't really impressed with her. I just felt that uh, it was time to get it out. So I, I kind of didn't want to push it too much. Um, I pushed it a little bit, but um, you know, really, I was my head was in a space where I was trying to. It was about me, 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 and and not about anything else. I was a little wild back then too. Actually, I was pretty wild. <laughs> So then Dance Your Love Away did get released in 1985. Hazel's single had been out and been top five in the UK. Did it feel a little odd to be coming out with Dance Your Love Away in the wake of Whatever I Do? No, it didn't feel odd at all. I was happy to be a part of that family, the Stockhake and Waterman family. The record was recorded in 1983 and it was released in 84, but probably on a larger scale worldwide in 1985, I think. Hazel Dean's record, Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go, um, it was not played as much as my record was played uh, in the clubs that I was in. Bolt's records really pushed me really, really hard. Uh, pushed the record really hard, I should say, to Europe. They held the record from everybody else and said to them, we couldn't, we can't press them fast enough. We're totally sold out. We're sold out. We're sold out. That's what they did to the United States. So by the time the record actually was released, it had already gained its own success momentum. And it was also already snowballing here in the United States. It was its own thing. Yeah. It was a new sound with a male sampling vocal on it and the DJ dropped which I don't think have been done before that record. It was all new. It was her, it was me, and, and, and that's it. There was no competition between the two of us. So that was my interview with Michael, and it was a really great and interesting interview about, I guess, someone who kind of fell into the music industry in the UK and then decided it wasn't for him. Not only is he a lovely guy, he actually looks amazing for a 60-year-old, doesn't he? He does, he does. So it, it was great to track him down. It was very exciting. It was, it was like that feeling when we found Edwina Laurie. It was like, we found him! <laughs> and that's part of the fun of doing this podcast, is, is tracking down these people who I never thought I'd get a chance to speak to and hearing their stories. So big thanks to Michael for sharing his story with us. I can see while Dance Your Love Away wasn't a big hit, you know, it's a good song and I can see why it might have been big in clubs perhaps, but I don't, I don't love it. It's not something I go back to a lot and listen to. What do you think of the song? Well, I think the great mystery that's been solved here for me was why this 
record sounds like a bit of an anachronism at this point in Saw's career because we found out from Michael that the genesis of this track goes all the way back to before Waterman even came on the scene. He was working on this originally with Mike Stock and Matt Aitken before they became Saw. That's how far the roots of this record go back. And I sort of hear in this record a very early Boys Town sound, very raw, very clubby. It's not polished like a Top 40 song in the way that so many Saw songs of this era are. It sounds like it's just made straight for gay clubs, doesn't it? That's always been why I've wondered why they bothered to release it. But then I guess maybe there was demand. Maybe it was being played and maybe people wanted to buy it. And yes, as you say, it it wasn't a commercial hit, but enough people loved it and wanted to own it. And so maybe they thought, let's put it out. Yeah, and I definitely appreciate it on that level. I I do like dancing around the living room to this song. It's probably not something that was ever going to be played on radio, but it has its appeal. And I'm so glad that Michael spoke to us. So that's it for our journey through Stockhaken Waterman for now. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next batch of songs and if all goes to plan another big guest fingers crossed on that one we'd like to publish more often but it takes a lot of time to track some of these artists down but we can't wait to record each time and we're really looking forward to getting this episode out and we hope you enjoy it and if you do subscribe rate review our show at apple podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and if you want more bonus content you can subscribe via chartbeats.com.au slash saw This week, I'm going to post the full interview with Michael Prince where he reveals what happened after Dance Your Love Away and why he uh, left the music industry. Plus, I'll post the full Q&A with Spelt Like This singer Alan Carner. So that's chartbeats.com.au slash saw. Until next time, I'm Gavin Scott. And I'm Matthew Denby. Bye. My personal feeling is that it wasn't just down to Contract of the Heart being a plop. A plop? <laughs> that goes, that, that's going to go in. <laughs> that's going to go in the bonus material. My personal feeling is that it wasn't just down to Contract of the Heart. <laughs> <laughs> you right there? Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've never seen you laugh like this. Oh, dear.